Well, last week uh, is what you might call where the rubber hits the road. Uh, It's easy to kind of have our heads in the clouds and think about what might be until it comes time to start living it out. It gets a little more difficult. We talked about the cost of discipleship. Uh, When people have a spiritual experience or they have an emotional high, uh, they tend to make a bold profession. But when it comes time to, to live it out, to prove it, oftentimes it becomes more difficult than they thought it would. Uh, why is that? Like, how is it that we can be so sure of something one moment and then later on do a 180 when it comes time to really make a commitment? And I would suggest to you that's because that we haven't counted the cost. We haven't thought it through. Um, those genuine commitments don't usually happen on the mountaintop. Okay, they usually happen in the valley. If they happen on the mountaintop, then there is a tendency to kind of falter when times get tough. In the parable of the sower and the seeds, Jesus is telling the people that the seed represents the gospel, and it's being all spread around, so it's being preached all over the place, and Jesus says that some of it falls on rocky ground where there wasn't much soil, and it springs up right away, and Jesus says these are those who receive the gospel with joy, and they're excited about it, and so they spring right up, but because they have no depth of soil, because it falls in rocky places, um, when times of difficulty come, when the sun comes out, when the heat gets turned up, they wilt. They bail. And he says that's what those are. Um, And then Jesus said that there's another type of seed that falls amongst thorns. And when those try to grow, they get choked out by the thorns, by the thistles. So the first kind grew up, but when the sun came out, when the heat was turned up, they wilted. They let the barrier of comfort keep them from becoming a true disciple. These next ones that grow up under the thorns, Jesus says the thorns are the cares of this life and the pursuit of riches. So chasing riches, chasing personal comfort, both of these things became barriers to becoming true disciples of Christ. We talked about those two people, the scribe who approached Jesus and said, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, it's going to be a tough life. It's not what you think it's going to be. There's not going to be a lot of honor. There's not going to be a lot of pillows. It's going to be a tough life. And the next person said, I will follow you wherever you go, but I got to go bury my dad first. And Jesus, and Jesus said, you know, hey, let the dead bury their dead. Don't let comfort, don't let the pursuit of personal riches because he was looking, he was waiting for his inheritance to get in the way of making a genuine commitment. Jesus said back in Matthew 6, he said, you cannot have one foot firmly planted in the world and one foot firmly planted in the kingdom. It doesn't work that way. It's not going to last. You're going to love one and you're going to hate the other. You can't serve both God and money. It's not going to happen. You can't search for comfort. You can't search for money and be fruitful in the kingdom, if that's your focus. Having those things, not necessarily bad, but where is your focus? What are you after? It'll keep you from genuine commitment, if that's your focus. Uh, Jesus said this in Luke's gospel. This is chapter 14, starting at verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation, he's not able to finish. All who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, but he wasn't able to finish. 
Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You need to think it through seriously. You need to count the cost if you're going to follow me. The cost of discipleship. Um, Our churches today are filled with casual Christians, where the biggest cost that they might have is waking up on Sunday morning to try to make it to church. And um, if we don't take Jesus serious, it's not for me to say who's saved and who's not saved, okay? That's not for me to to judge people's hearts. But if we do not take this serious, serious, think it through, cost, um, the cost of discipleship, then, um, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to falter. We're going to wilt when pressure comes our way, um, when we fall into the trap of chasing riches. Um, because it's more than just raising our hand in a service or repeating a prayer, okay? Um, if we don't count the cost, if we found our life on Jesus, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, if we build our house on the rock, we're going to be able to survive any storm that comes our way, And if Jesus' promise is that he will be with us in the storm, okay, we need to count the cost, we need to build our house on the rock, and we'll survive any storm that comes our way. And then Jesus says, not only that, but I'm going to be with you in every storm. And that's what we see practically today is Jesus literally being with them in the storm. So our text today is going to be Matthew 8, starting in verse 23. And when he got into the boat, His disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, for we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? One of the wonderful things about studying the life of Jesus is that we read about real human problems, real human frailties, but he also gives us real practical solutions on how to deal with those things. Uh, Not only can he relate to our humanness, to the things that we go through, but he shows us how we can be empowered to walk through them. And the bottom line is we have to go through them with him. Okay, we can't go through them by ourselves. We have to go with him. If we're not with him, then we're going to unravel. We're going to wilt when difficult times come. If it's not with him, we're going to fall apart. And what we're going to be covering today is just that. We're going to be covering our human fear of uncertainty, our anxiety when things seem too big for us to handle. But they're not even a challenge. They're not even the slightest challenge to the creator of the universe who spoke that all into existence with a word and holds all things together. So keep that in the back of your mind. He holds all things together. We're going to revisit that a little bit later. The disciples had just seen an incredible display of Jesus' power in healing, in casting out demons, all these people, this whole crowd that surrounded Jesus. He healed everybody that came to him. And now they're going to witness his power and his control over the natural world. That's why I call this supernatural. First, over sickness and disease and death and demons, now his power over the natural world. In 1 Corinthians uh, 15, Paul refers to Jesus as the last Adam. Why does he call him the last Adam? Well, the first Adam 
when he was created, God gave him dominion over the entire earth. He said, you have control. You're in charge, Adam. I want you to tend the earth. I want you to care for it, multiply. Now, we don't know how much time went by between God giving Adam dominion over all the earth and the time where Satan approached Adam and Eve and caused them to sin. But when he sinned, when Adam sinned, he handed over control of the world He surrendered that to Satan by listening to his voice, by submitting to what Satan told him to do. He handled control of the earth over to the devil. He's now the ruler of this world, and it shows. He's called the prince of this world. All the sickness, all the pain, all the war, all the death, all of that is a result of the fall, and part of Satan's plan, part of his rebellion against God is to destroy his creation, okay? He tried to replace God. He wanted to be God. But since he couldn't do that, he is trying to destroy his creation, the world and everything in it. But God had a plan. In Revelations 13, it tells us that before the foundation of the world, God had a plan. His plan was that Jesus was going to come to earth twice. He was going to arrive twice. The first time he was coming to redeem man. And the second time he comes, he's coming to redeem earth. We talked about in Revelations how John is witnessing all of these things that are going on in heaven. And he is, and they say, who is worthy to open the scroll, right? And John is just weeping because nobody comes out to open the scroll. And this scroll is the title deed to earth, right? It had been handed over to the devil, And he's weeping because nobody's coming out. And then the angel says, fear not, because the lion of the tribe of Judah is coming out. He is the one who is worthy to open the scroll and read it and to take back, to redeem the earth. And that's part of God's plan from the beginning. The first time Jesus came in humility as a baby, he came as one of us to die on a cross. The second time he comes, he's going to be riding in victory as a warrior king to redeem the earth. It's going to be the renewal of all things. He will establish his kingdom on the earth at that time in a thousand-year reign where we actually will be with him, ruling and reigning with the Lord here on the earth. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be the way things were created to be. It truly is almost you know, impossible to comprehend what that day is going to be like. There's not going to be any more evil. There's only going to be holiness and righteousness and peace and truth. All of the things that stood in the way, all of the things that were barriers to that happening are going to be removed. We think the earth is beautiful now. Imagine what it's going to be like when Jesus renews it. We're not going to have to talk about global warming anymore. (laughs) It's going to be awesome. We're not going to hear about it. Try as they might, man cannot solve the problems of our environment. We can't do it. Someone said that for every problem that science solves, six more problems are created in its place. All you have to do is watch a pharmaceutical commercial, right? This will cure your dry eyes, but it'll probably make you dizzy and headaches and diarrhea, and you might even die. (laughs) Basically, all the things that could go wrong when you take this drug, okay? For every problem that science solves, more are created in its place. The greater our advancements, the more severe the complications can become. If we are so far from solving human problems, how impossible is it for us to solve spiritual problems? It can't be done. That's the bad news. That's the bad news. For there to be a gospel, for there to be good news, there has to be a bad news. But too many times, the good news is presented without the bad news. 
We don't have the power to reverse the curse. Man's been trying to figure it out ever since it happened. But we can't do it. That's the bad news. That's the reason why there's a good news. Jesus is the only one that could redeem us. He's the only one that can redeem the earth. I heard a scientist say last week that the next generation could be the first generation that never dies. A scientist said that this week. The next generation could be the first generation that never dies. Through genetic manipulation, they would be able to turn back the clock to reverse aging. And he said this. He said they would be like God's. That sound familiar? That was the lie that the devil gave Eve in the Garden of Eden. If you eat the fruit, you will be like God. It's the ultimate works-based religion. I can save myself through my knowledge, through my technological advancements, through my learning. These men are going to find out that God cannot be replaced. He will not be replaced. He can only be surrendered to and followed by faith. Okay, I have four words that I'm going to use to try to reinforce the message today. I'm using this old pastor trick. I'm going to use some words. They all start with P. Hopefully that makes it easier to remember. It's really just to keep me on track. Uh, The first is problem. Uh, Last week we read that the crowd was surrounding Jesus. They were pressing in on Jesus, and he gave his disciples instructions that you guys need to get ready. We're going to go over to the other side, the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long by about eight miles wide at its furthest point. Jesus and the disciples were leaving Capernaum, right, in the west, and they were traveling over to the east side, which is Gentile territory, which we're going to talk about next week. They're getting ready to leave. They're going to cross over. Now, Jesus had had a very long day. A very long day. He was probably up early. We're told that he regularly woke up early to pray and commune with the Father. And then he had preached the Sermon on the Mount. And then he started healing people. And he healed everyone who came to him. So as you can imagine, by the end of this, he is exhausted. Now, we talk about Jesus' humanness a lot. We don't really dwell on it. After all of this, we see it very practically that Jesus is tired physically. They had seen incredible display of his deity, but now we see him tired physically. When all of a sudden a storm erupts, it says behold. When it says behold, that means immediately, suddenly, a storm popped up. Now, you have professional fishermen on this boat. Their whole life they have grown up on this body of water. They were accustomed to changing conditions. You guys ready for a science lesson? (laughs) All right. I love this kind of stuff. Um, The Sea of Galilee is over 600. It's almost 700 feet below sea level. Okay, and to give you some perspective, Death Valley is our lowest point in America, and it's 282 feet below sea level. So it's almost 700 feet below sea level. Now, there is Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon to the north, and Mount Hermon is, is 9,200 feet above sea level. It snows there. Have anybody ever wondered when the Bible talks about snow? You're like, I don't know, snows in Israel? Where did they find that? Well, in Mount Hermon, it actually does snow quite a bit there. And so you have snow in Mount Hermon in the north, and that is about 50 miles north of where um, the Sea of Galilee is. And so you have all of this cold air coming down and meeting the warm air above the Sea of Galilee in the Jordan Valley, and it can whip up some storms pretty quickly. Similar to how the cold air comes in over the Rockies, right? And lands in Kansas and creates some kind of storms. Although uh, Mount Hermon is only, like I said, about 50 miles, so they can happen really fast. 
The Greek word that's used for this great storm is seismos, from which we get our our word seismic or seismology, which is the study of earthquakes. So this storm, the Sea of Galilee, is literally shaking. And in Mark's gospel, we're told that the waves are breaking over the boat. The waves are so big, they're breaking over the boat, and they're starting to fill up the boat. Now, you might be a heavy sleeper. I'm not a heavy sleeper. I used to be. I'm not anymore. You may be a heavy sleeper. How heavy would you have to sleep? How tired would you have to be to sleep on a boat where the Sea of Galilee is literally shaking? You're getting hit in the face with water, and yet Jesus is sleeping soundly right in the middle of all of it. There were times when my girls were young, they were little, and they're not morning people. And so I would go in to wake them up, and they would not wake up. So I would start bouncing, you know, the the mattress to try to wake them up. They'd be bouncing up and down, and they still wouldn't wake up. Or they were good pretenders, one of the two. Jesus here is sleeping in the midst of this seismic storm. But it was part of a divine plan. The storm is swirling. The winds and the waves are swamping the boat. And yet the creator of the world is sleeping soundly in the middle of it. I mentioned briefly last week that we're told that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's seated. He is not walking the floors of heaven anxiously. He's not wringing his hands wondering whether or not we're going to make it. Okay? He told the disciples, we're going to go over to the other side. He is going to see them to the other side. He's going to see you and I to the other side. He didn't say, let's take off for the other side and see if we can make it. I see a storm coming. No, they were going to reach the other side because Jesus said so. You and I have a problem. We have a big problem. We have a sin problem. A sin problem that is going to separate us from God without Jesus Christ. Our sin nature, it's built into us. It's going to separate us. That is our huge problem if we are without Jesus. But his promise to you and me is that if we accept him, if we surrender our lives to him and accept his free gift of eternal life and we walk with him, that he's going to take us to the other side. You don't have to be anxious about eternity if you are following Jesus. You don't have to panic, which is what our next word is. First they had a problem, and now they panic. These professional fishermen panic. It says, and they went and they woke him saying, save us, Lord, for we are perishing. The fact that these men who had grown up on this water are starting to panic tells me that this is a supernatural storm. This is not a natural storm. This is a supernatural storm. I'm going to explain why in a moment. But these guys would have been doing everything they could in their power to try to steer the ship to the other side. Everything that they knew how to do. This was their skill set, what they did. They steered ships and they caught fish. That's what they were good at. But they had run out of human solutions and now they had to turn to Jesus. Probably should have started there in the first place. But isn't that just like you and me? We don't go to Jesus first. We do everything we can in our own power to try to figure it out. This is something that is... um, it's difficult for me in my own life, okay? I'll admit to that. Um, I feel like I'm self-sufficient. I don't like asking for help. I can do this on my own. I can figure it out. But that's just pride talking. That's all it is. It's pride. When we try to figure it out ourselves and we don't go to Jesus, when we think we have it all wired, sometimes we have to be brought to the point of absolute desperation before he can get our attention. And I don't know about you, but I do not want to be brought to the point of absolute desperation so that he can get my attention. 
The story is told of a hardened old sea captain who was quite vocal about his atheism. And then one night they went through a storm and he got washed overboard and the men could hear him screaming out to God for help. And when they brought him back in, when they got him back in the boat, one of them said, I thought you didn't believe in God. And he said, well, if there isn't a God, there ought to be for times like this. It's been said that there are no atheists in foxholes. (laughs) In times of difficulty, people turn to the Lord. Many people only turn to the Lord, though, when every human solution has been exhausted. Listen, God loves to hear a sinner's cry of desperation. He loves to hear the sinner's cry of desperation, but he doesn't do it because he's on a power trip. Okay, he doesn't do it because he wants to see us squirm. He does it because the first thing in coming into Jesus Christ, the first step is to admit our own inadequacy. And when we admit that and we turn to him, he loves to hear our prayers. God loves to hear his people cry out to him because that's a sign that they know to whom they belong. The Psalms are full of these kind of cries for help. In Psalms 10, he says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And in Psalms 44, 26, Rise up and come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. In Isaiah 51, 9, it says, Awake, Awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. These disciples were with Jesus, but they tried everything they could to handle the problem on their own. They didn't wake him up first. And since they were trying to handle this problem on their own, it ended up in a panic. And that brings us to our next point. They had a problem. They tried to figure it out on their own, so they started to panic. They turned to Jesus, and now they were going to witness his power Now, nothing about this situation seemed normal. It's understandable that they would all be completely freaked out, except for the one who was sleeping peacefully in the middle of the storm. They had every reason to be afraid, but Jesus said, you guys have very little faith. A storm pops up suddenly, and these violent waves are sweeping over the boat. The fishermen are panicking, which suggests that this was not a normal Galilee storm. Everything about it was not normal. Then they wake Jesus up, and what he says is, why are you so afraid, oh, you of little faith? His reaction wasn't even normal. Like a normal person's reaction would be to kind of panic and freak out too, but Jesus' reaction says, as he wakes up and he assesses the situation, he says, what's wrong with you guys? Haven't you seen enough of my power? Haven't you experienced enough of my love to know that you're perfectly safe with me? You should know that because of my power, I can help you. And because of my compassion, I will help you. Even if you should drown, don't you know that you're going to be in heaven immediately? What do you have to be afraid of? I read this portion of scripture, the Psalms 107. This blew my mind. I don't remember reading this portion of scripture before, but listen to what it says. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. My footnote in in, uh, my Bible says that all their wisdom was swallowed up. (laughs) All of their human solutions were gone. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm to be still. The waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. 
Isn't that pretty amazing? This whole situation that's happening on the Sea of Galilee is playing out prophetically from what we read in Psalms 107. This was written centuries earlier. This may have rung a bell in the minds of some of the disciples after Jesus calmed the storm. You might say, Nathan, are you just going to tell us that God's power and God's love is going to see us through anything? Yes, I am. (laughs) I guess I could have said that at the beginning and then we could have all gone home. But then we would not be immersing ourselves in the scriptures, like I said, and gazing at God's beauty and his goodness and having a brand new appreciation every single time of his goodness and what he does for us in our lives. But that's the essence of what we need to know, and that's the essence of what we need to consider every time we run into difficult seasons, even trouble that threatens to sink our ship. Jesus has compassion and power. It's what we talked about a few weeks ago. He's ready. He's able. But the question on everybody's mind is, is he willing? Is he willing to help me out of this situation? Now, Jesus didn't promise that he was going to solve every problem that we find ourselves in, but he did promise that he was going to be with us every step of the way. In John 14, Jesus says this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. He's going to be with us. His Spirit is going to be with us. It's going to guide us every step of the way if we submit to him and listen for him. And we know this intellectually in our minds, but humanly speaking, Knowing God's power and his compassion and trusting him are not always the same thing. We know it. We know about God's power. We know about his compassion. But are we willing to put all of our trust in him? Remember Elijah at the top of Mount Carmel when he had the face-off with the prophets of Baal? They said, let's set up two two altars. We're going to put two sacrifices on the altar. And the God that answers with fire, he is the real God. You guys keep serving Baal. Let's see who's real. And so they get up there and we know what happened. The prophets of Baal, they start screaming and dancing and praying all day long. And eventually Elijah's had enough. He's like, all right, that's enough. My turn. And he gets up and he prays a short prayer to God and fire falls and consumes everything. And then he literally takes care of all the prophets of Baal. He kills them all himself. Huge victory for God. Huge victory for Elijah that day. But then news of that situation reaches Queen Jezebel. And she says, I am not going to rest until I kill that prophet. And Elijah freaks out. He had just seen God's display of power in an incredible way. And now he runs and he hides in a cave and falls into a depression. He he had just seen God's power. He knows it intellectually, but his, his humanness falters a little bit as he wonders, will God help me out of this one? That's a little bit encouraging to me when I read about some of the heroes of the faith that also were very human, right? And had seasons where they wondered, will God help me out of this? And I don't know why we have very short memories when it comes to God's goodness. We have very long memories when it comes to our hurts, right? And our failures, other people's failures. We have very long memories when it comes to that, but very short memories when it comes to the Lord for some reason. We tend to take our eyes off of him, start focusing on the storm all around us, and we start to panic. But if we keep our eyes on him, we are going to experience his power. Because if he's at peace, then we can be at peace too. He is our Prince of Peace. We read about this account again over in Mark chapter 4, and it tells us that Jesus stood up and spoke to the storm and said, peace, 
be still. And there's something interesting that gives us some insight on where this storm came from. Because the word that Jesus uses here where he says be still is literally be muzzled. When he says be still, it's literally translated from the Greek be muzzled, like a muzzle that you would put over an animal. It's the same word he uses on multiple occasions when speaking to demons. When demons approached Jesus, when the demonic person came near Jesus, they would cry out and try to identify him as the son of God. And he would say, be muzzled. They would not be able to speak as he cast them out. He does the same thing here with the storm, which shows us that this is a supernatural storm inspired by Satan. But Jesus calms it in an instant. And it didn't just slowly wind down. It didn't come down to a drizzle. Everything was at peace in an instant. Now, I've attended churches. I'm going to say this. This might be a little bit controversial, but that's okay. I've attended churches that are in the, uh, what they would call word of faith movement, where, you know, you just have to speak it out. Our words have power, so you have to speak it out. Jesus spoke to the storm, and so you just need to speak to the storm and rebuke it. It's not Jesus spoke to this. It's not Jesus spoke to the storm. It's Jesus spoke to the storm. Okay, He is the one, the Creator that exercises power over His creation. I think that's an important distinction. It's not that Jesus spoke to the storm. It's Jesus spoke to the storm. He is the one that is our strength. He is the one that is our deliverer. When Jesus said, O you of little faith, I don't think that his expectation was that disciples should have stood up and rebuked the storm. I think his expectation is they would have faith because he was in the boat with them. He said, let's go over to the other side. He didn't say, let's put out and see if we can make it. Okay, they should have had faith because of who was with them. You know, when uh, natural disasters occur, like Hurricane Ian uh, a few weeks ago, insurance companies call that an act of God. It's what they call natural disasters, an act of God. I think God gets a bad rap. I think he gets a bad reputation, okay? Because this world is currently under the control, under the influence of the devil. But because he's a liar, what he does is he tries to get man to pin the blame on God. That that disaster was, um, you know, an act of God. When in reality, a lot of those things are stirred up by the devil himself, Satan has a lot to do with the storms of this life, but Jesus can calm them in an instant. The things that are going on in your life that feel like they're out of control, God can give you peace. He can calm the storm in an instant. The disciples had a problem, and when they couldn't fix it on their own, they panicked. Then they witnessed Jesus' power, and then were told that they were perplexed. That's my last one, perplexed. Actually, it says that they marveled, but I couldn't find a sentiment that started with, with P. So they were perplexed. It says that they were marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? First, they were afraid of the storm. Now they're kind of afraid of Jesus. You know, because now they had a holy fear, a holy fear of the Lord. He heals sickness and he casts out demons. And now creation obeys his command. What kind of man is this? They had a holy fear. Job said, I had heard of you with my ears, but now I see you and I repent in dust and ashes. When Isaiah saw the Lord in a vision, he said, Woe is me, I am ruined. I am undone because he had seen the Lord. When John saw Jesus on the island of Patmos in Jesus' glorified state, he fell down at his feet as dead. When they saw his glorious power, 
they were submissive to him when they experienced the power of God. They had a holy fear. When do we experience the power and presence of God? We experience it the most in the storm, in the trial. It has to become more than head knowledge if he's going to stretch our faith, if he's going to grow our faith. The biggest witness that you might have is when people see what goes on inside of you when you walk through the most difficult times in your life. When people witness how you react, how you live, they're going to wonder, why are you different? Because you have his strength inside of you, his peace inside of you. That might be your greatest witness, showing other people who is your strength. Before I wrap up, I want to visit the book of Colossians. This is one of my favorite books of the Bible. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, Paul tells us, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now the key word that Paul uses here is preeminent. I didn't think about this till this morning. That one starts with P2. Preeminent. That's the point that he's trying to drive home. Here are some words that we use as synonyms for preeminent. Greatest, foremost, supreme, superior, unrivaled, incomparable, unsurpassed, and matchless. Now, verse 15 has created a lot of confusion in the Christian world because they see the word firstborn and they claim that Jesus was created. They say, see, he is a created being. So you have like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses that believe that Jesus was a created being. But that's not what it means. It means preeminent. It doesn't mean that he was created. Here's an example. In Genesis, Joseph brings his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to Jacob. Jacob is on his deathbed and he's blessing his sons. And Joseph comes before him, sets his children before him. Now, Manasseh is the older one. And so he places him on Jacob's right side so he can have the right hand of blessing. Now, Ephraim's going to get blessed too, but he puts him on his left side because he's the younger one. And Jacob reaches out to bless them, and he goes like that. He switches his arms over, and the right hand goes on Ephraim, and and Joseph's like, wait, 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 father, that's Ephraim. You're supposed to be on Manasseh, and he starts prophesying anyway. He blesses them, and and Ephraim gets the blessing of the firstborn, And in Jeremiah 31, it says that Ephraim is called God's firstborn. Ephraim is used interchangeably with the nation of Israel. Ephraim wasn't the firstborn, but he was the greatest. He was the one that got the blessing. Also, David, in Psalm 89, 27, is referred to as the firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth, when clearly he was the youngest of his father's sons. So what does that mean, that he was the firstborn? It means that he was preeminent. Jesus was not created. He was firstborn in that he was preeminent. So Jesus is supreme over creation, not in creation, but over creation. All things were created by him and through him and for him. You guys with me? Okay. In case you haven't seen it, are you guys familiar with the new James Webb telescope, deep space telescope? I looked up some pictures um, of 
that that they've captured. They are incredible pictures. That's just one of them. Let's go to the next one. That one blows me away. It's a real, it doesn't look real, but that's, a, that's an image they captured. The second one puts um, the Hubble telescope picture next to the James Webb one. Isn't that, a hu- isn't that an amazing difference? The Hubble is on the right. This new James Webb one is on the left. And then the last one, this one looks like a Christmas tree. It's just incredible that they would capture a picture like that. And some scientists would say, this whole thing just happened by accident. Now, there are massive objects out there. There's a, there's a whole video. I would encourage you to watch it. It's incredible. It's by Louis Giglio, and it's called, um, what is it called? Indescribable. So you should look it up on YouTube. It's an incredible sermon. It talks about all the planets and how big they are and how small we are in comparison to things that we know about. There are things that we don't even know about. So we could go from one end of the spectrum with what we see in these massive telescopes and go all the way to the other end in what we see through these super microscopes and what make up atoms. I could do a whole sermon series on the vastness of God and all the detail that he put into his creation. So back to in him, all things hold together. If he holds all things together, then it's an easy task for him to tell the winds and the waves to calm down. Your situation that you're in right now may not make sense to you, but it's an easy thing for the creator to speak peace into that situation. Did you know that scientists don't even know how atoms are held together? They don't even know. Okay, another science lesson. Science lesson number two. Three parts of the atom, right? We have the electrons that are running around the outside. Then you have the nucleus, which is made up of protons, and neutrons, and they're packed in there together. But they shouldn't be, because opposites attract, but like charges repel. But here you have a bunch of protons, and you have neutrons packed into this, and they shouldn't. They should be repelling each other, but they're stuck together, and scientists don't know why. And you know what they call it? They call it the force. The force, or the atomic glue that holds these things together. They don't understand it. It shouldn't be happening. But we know why these things are held together, or rather, who is holding them together. One day, Jesus is going to let go. He holds all things together, but one day, he's going to let go. Come on. The atomic bomb was made when they split the atom, right? They split the atom, atom and the atomic bomb happened. Now, If all the atoms in the world were split, if Jesus simply lets go, that's the end of this place as we know it. Peter writes that all the elements will melt with fervent heat and the earth will be burned up. I would say so if he lets go. Then Jesus will create a new heaven and a new earth where we will live with him for eternity. But until then, we live in a broken world which is under the influence of Satan and try as he might, every once in a while, God steps in and speaks peace. says, be still, just to let him know who's still really in charge. And he can do that in our lives. Now you may say, well, Nathan, what if he doesn't? George Mueller, that great man of faith, said this, faith for my deliverance is not faith in God. Faith means whether I'm visibly delivered or not, I will stick to my belief that God is love. There are some things that are only learned in a trial. 
Faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There's no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. Faith begins where man's power ends. When we have exhausted ourselves, there's nothing left but faith in Jesus. We can go there first. That would save us a lot of heartache, a lot of anxiety. The disciples used all their own power. They exhausted their own knowledge to solve a problem. When they couldn't do it on their own, they panicked. Jesus could have stopped the storm before it even happened, but he wanted to, he had to grow their faith. And if you're in a season of life where you have a big problem, don't panic. Rely on his power and you and every other person that sees it will be blown away. They will marvel at what God's done in your life. We can be at perfect, perfect peace because of the one that we belong to. And I'm going to end with this. David Mathis writes this. Brothers and sisters, Jesus holds it all together. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, the first creation and the new creation, the present and the future, all of history and the smallest details of your life. In him is full undiminished divinity and true uncompromised humanity. He is a lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion. He is Lord of all time and space, Savior of his chosen people, and the supreme treasure who corresponds perfectly with our personal weariness and our longing for greatness. I can relate to personal weariness, and you? We all have this longing for something greater than ourselves, and we're only going to find it in him. We all have a problem. We shouldn't be panicking because our Prince of Peace is at perfect peace, sitting at the right hand of the Father. You know what it says? It says that he ever lives to make intercession for you and I. He is praying for you and I. Again, he's not anxious. He's not pacing the floors of heaven. He is going to, it says that he who started a good work in you is able to complete it. He started a good work in you with salvation. That faith, he is able to complete it. He has you. Nothing can snatch you out of his hand. What is there to worry about? Have faith. Grow your faith, right? Let him do that. But let's be the ones that are proactive (laughs) in going to him. So we're not brought to the point of desperation where he has to get our attention that way. But if we're walking with him, we don't have to be anxious about eternity. We can walk through any situation. And even if it's not visible to us or to other people, we can have faith in his love, that he is love.